Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Sean Antonis, who is the head of investment strategy at MindSuper. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Walter. Uh, thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. So most of our uh, guests have uh, a purely investment uh, background, but you also had for a long time uh, still a foot in academia. And I think when we first met, you were still full-time at the University of Sydney. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, how you look at investing with sort of that academic background? Do you see, do you look at things differently than, than perhaps some of your peers and colleagues? Yeah, interesting question. So uh, I'd say in many ways you can, regardless of the path you take, uh, you can end up in a similar place with similar conclusions um, or similar philosophies. But certainly from a, an academic perspective um, you know I've, I've picked up a lot of knowledge tools understandings um, that I've brought into the investment space uh, and and those insights have been very useful mostly around testing hypotheses questioning ideas um, also understanding the extent of problems like p hacking in in the academic literature and p hacking what is that so yeah, so p-hacking is um, a process that, that really results from incentives. So uh, if you think about the problem that most academics have, they're trying to get published. Publishing uh, well in good journals is a pathway to promotion. So, uh, but there's a there's an effect that goes on in, in with with journals, which is that if you have positive results that either confirm your model or the model of someone else, you're more likely to be published than if you have results that are unclear or ambivalent. And so what this brings about is p-hacking. So what happens there is that uh, academics will filter the sample, they'll change the start and end point, they'll change the method by which they perhaps calculate risk variables, uh, they'll put in extra requirements to filter out small stocks, large stocks, or banking stocks, all these sorts of things that go on until they get a sample set that actually confirms the hypothesis and so this is called p-hacking and the critical values uh, for p are usually five percent people love to get one percent but um, you know usually it's five percent uh, and that what that means is there's a five percent chance that this outcome could be just purely by chance and so that's a threshold uh, and um, you know that hacking can lead to conclusions you think something works you read the paper it seems like it works but actually it may be a result of, of p-hacking. Sounds a bit like data mining in investing. Yeah, I think in in investing, it's um, you know you hear data mining or curve fitting, um, but there's there's a distinct difference, right? Because, and this comes down to this agency issue. So, um, if you think about 
uh, you know, an academic, if they write a paper and, and it is it does involve p-hacking, uh, the chances that there's any repercussions, any, any challenges that come along are fairly low. Um, and so that doesn't have many consequences. But of course, in industry, if you do data mining um, or curve fitting for building, say, systematic trading strategies, at some point that'll come unstuck. And of course, you will wear the risk. Um, and that may have uh, you know, implications for your career or your group or your team and so on. So um, there, there are differences uh, in incentives. Yeah. So let's take one step back. You sort of went in and out of investing, I think, in academia uh, during your career, because I think before the University of Sydney, you also worked for, for a hedge fund. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in investing itself? Yeah, okay. Well, um, maybe that starts with that, yeah, the, the beginning of, of life at university. But, um, you know, unlike, I mean, I guess I was the antithesis of what modern universities um, uh, sell, which is, you know, I went into university with no idea of, of what I really wanted to do. Um, I was good at maths and physics and, and I really loved English. Couldn't do the English component, so I tended to be, I was stuck with the sciences. And, you know, did an honours thesis in pricing interest rate options and ended up being sucked into an investment bank. And at that time in history, there was a big need for mathematicians to price exotic call options and, and price uh, interesting swaps and so forth. Uh, so I was brought in to do that um, and ended up uh, trading, you know, ultimately the sort of term structure of interest rate volatility and developing systematic strategies um, for trading derivatives. Yep. So that was sort of the, the starting point. Um, went from banking to the hedge fund space uh, but what I, one of the interesting things I found, and this is, you know, I went to the US, and one of the interesting things I found in the US was that many people in, at this point in time uh, had PhDs in senior positions, so I needed to get a PhD. So I decided I'd, um, you know, for, also for family reasons, come back to Sydney, do a PhD with a plan that I'd go back to industry. Uh, but what I discovered was there's really interesting academic problems, and um, they were not in the areas that I thought I would be interested in. They were more in asset pricing, which has a lot to do with portfolio construction, of course, uh, but less to do with systematic trading, which is something that, that I was, you know, I guess, uh, you know, mainly occupied with uh, in, in industry. So I stuck around a little bit in academia working on those problems, but was continually getting you know, asked, would I be interested in this or that? And of course, superannuation um, came along. Uh, the CEO of Mind Super at the time um, made a couple of, uh, gave me a couple of taps. And uh, it allowed me to, to bridge the two worlds for a while. Um, but obviously uh, today I'm, I'm fully at MindSuper. Yeah. So you did for a while where I think you were one day a week still at the uh, University of Sydney's business school. Um, and when we first met, you did some research into how good actually are asset owners in picking managers rather than managers picking stocks. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what you found out there? Oh, well, most of that, that research at that time was more about um, trying to, to explain, I guess, um, the, not just the alpha that managers get, but the variation, the residuals that, that managers um, see and trying to explain how does that relate to fees. So if you're thinking about the, how good people are at picking managers, you would expect uh, fees to be associated with performance, higher performance, higher fees. That's a natural equilibrium, right, that you would expect to play out. Um, and you know the academic literature has, has long demonst you know, demonstrated that this uh, relation doesn't seem to exist. 
Um, but what our research um, managed to show was that there is some uh, correction, I guess, to that relation that goes on if you uh, lock in on the idea of bad states of the world. So the idea that people pay away, they're happy to pay higher fees for managers who perform during times of uh, crisis. So, you know, that might be times where financial stress is high or recession and so forth. Um, so that that sort of changed our, my view a little bit on that relation. It's still not a strong outcome. You still, it's still the broad cross-section of funds. It's a difficult thing to explain. Um, but I think, you know, as we all know, if you, um, and, and I think, Walter, you, you know this as well as I do, that if, you, if you're looking at a very, very large pool of investment managers, well, of course, on average, um, they won't perform because you've got fees at play. Uh, but the real trick is trying to identify the best of that crop. Yeah, and I think you've got some new research coming out as well into that. Yeah, working with um, a guy named Chris Glover, who's a, um, a financial mathematician at UTS, and also one of my colleagues at Mind Super um, Waiting, uh, who's a, a quant. And you know, our work is on the idea of um, really the manager selection problem. So often this debate around active passive has been highly polarized. It's, it's um, you know, you're either a believer or not. Um, and the truth is obviously, well to me, it's obviously somewhere in the middle. Um, so our model is um, a model where the investor uh, is choosing a manager. And they, they're ultimately then determining through time, is this manager a good manager or not? And that is indeed the problem that asset owners have. They choose an active manager, they monitor performance. And then at some point, if performance is not sufficient, they might make a decision to terminate. So what our model is trying to do is, is capture that decision-making process, but also the costs of termination. And I think that's something in the debate which is often lost. People ignore it and it becomes a, a manager by manager proposition. But that's not what asset owners do. We manage, we manage money for very long periods of time and we're allocating to different managers uh, through time. So in, in that debate between passive and active, you should not only look at manager fees, but also at the fees of transitioning, of termination, of reallocating the capital, basically. Absolutely right, Walter. I mean, it's, um, yeah, and, and, that, and often, you know, those things go hand in hand. So, you know, the alpha you might get um, from a manager, for example, in small caps, you would expect to see that in small caps because you expect to see higher informational, um, you know, inefficiency, I guess. Uh, but of course, the liquidity is lower and that's related to informational efficiency. So if the liquidity is lower, then your cost of exiting that manager and transitioning can be a lot higher. Yeah. So what sort of practical implications does that have? Does it mean that you should set the threshold for firing managers higher? Yeah, that, it's a, there, are, there are some very interesting practical implications. So one is um, you don't want to fire a manager too early because the costs are so large and, and the costs must be integrated into that decision around firing. But the other aspect is, is uncertainty. So we tend to be pretty good at point estimates in, in industry. We're pretty good with saying, oh, the, we think the alpha is 20 basis points per annum. But what we're not so good at is identifying what's the, what's the probability of that being true or just chance. So again, this goes back to P statistics, uh, P values. Um, so, you know, you, you, a manager can't P hack their track record. It is what it is, but an allocator can look at it and assess, um, you know, the statistical likelihood that this track record is, um, is being generated by genuine skill or, or um, and capability um, 
or is it really a result of just being a little lucky? What can you say about sort of timeframes in assessing those managers? Because um, we looked a little bit with, in the past, uh, um, our former columnist, Daniel Grioli, the market fox, uh, looked into, you know, average time it takes to have some statistical significance around a, a trend and performance. And, and he basically concluded that it takes uh, multiple years before you can actually tell whether a manager is lucky or not, and not just the three years that sort of seems to be a standard for on the performance and termination. Yeah, that's a good a good point. And I think, um, you know, determining whether a manager has skill or not, it's not just statistical, right? So there are a bunch of other due diligence processes that go on. Uh, in the paper I've um, working on with Chris that and, and Wei Ting, that paper you know, incorporates this idea that you know, there's an evolution in your beliefs about a manager. It's not just coming out of uh, a pure statistical piece of analysis. So that those beliefs could involve you know, conviction around um, the manager's skill, staff coming and going, um, you know, the technology they're using, uh, whether they, the edge they've developed is now something that everybody has. All those things can be a part of that picture. So, so I think that's important. Uh, and, and similarly, you know, if you get a p-value for a manager that's very low, you think that, that their alpha is, you're very confident. You have to put it in context. It could be that you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, the markets were very different and they had a certain edge around data, which is no longer an edge. Does it also depend on, on the different styles of managers? Uh, I can remember we talked a little bit about looking at value managers that often their outperformance is quite lumpy. Um, and so if you invest just after that outperformance, then you're unlikely to get a great result in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, this falls into a couple of categories, but um, you know, certainly you know, if you believe that there's some sort of mean reversion going on around the drivers of performance, then clearly chasing performance will lead to some you know, not so favorable outcomes. Um, but having said that, a lot of the a lot of the factors that we use, the value factors, and a lot, um, you know, they change significantly through time. They're different across managers the way people calculate them. Um, but also managers themselves, you know, if you look at the performance of a manager and you think, oh well, that's going to mean revert. You know, they've done very well now. Now they should do poorly, or vice versa. Well, you have to think about the economics of that. And if their stock portfolio is actually static then maybe that's a reasonable thing to examine. But if their stock portfolio is dynamic, then that may not make sense. So why would past performance, you know, why would mean reversion play out if they're rotating through different stocks necessarily? Uh, so, but it, it is a consideration I think that's worth making. Yeah. So there's a couple of points that you uh, look at um, at manager selection, but, but when you sort of think about the difference between an academic approach and, and sort of a, a typical investment approach. I think you said in the past that there seems to be a lot of folklore in the investment industry. Can you, can you go a little bit into that? that? Yeah, well, look, I'd, I'd love to take um, a responsibility for that, but I'm pretty sure uh, that was Sue Brake. I think at the time she she used that, one of your, your I3 conferences used that term, and I, and I, I really stuck in my brain. Um, but it, it is really a question of, you know, assessing um, what you hear and what you're told and the conventions that, that are at play. 
So there are things that are made that, you know, people make statements that, oh, this always holds true. But it's worthwhile just having a look and examining with the data if that's if that is the case. Uh, the periods upon which that was the case, you know, is it a conditional kind of outcome? Um, and, and I think that's um, that's one of the things where an academic perspective is useful, where you, you, there's a natural instinct as an academic to unpick and test hypotheses and question results. Um, and that, that's a, not a bad discipline to have in investing. So are there any sort of myths that you still see being used in the industry today that you want to bust? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if there are myths. I think there are, it's more, I guess, practices and processes around, um, uh, you know, how we, how we allocate money. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, I guess there are sometimes conclusions drawn from uh, fairly loose graphs uh, that don't necessarily, you know, bear analysis. Um, but that's not just a, an industry um, or an investment problem. It also shows up in, in a regulatory setting. So we, we have seen publications from regulators where they put out some very um, interesting graphs involving size and performance and draw a kind of a weird curve through them in an arrow and say, see, size means you're better. But, um, you know, the academic literature says that that might not be clear. But also, there's the, you know, that work has no statistical basis. It's just a, a graph. And that also seems to be different for different asset classes because I think most people are aware that you know size in equities investing is is actually detrimental rather than a positive thing. Yeah, and look, most of most of um, what super funds hold is certainly in that in the high growth end is equities. Uh, yeah, size is detrimental in that area. Obviously, small caps is a, is a problem, um, but you know in, in in credit or in, in the sort of bond space, fixed income, that size is less an issue. These are very, very deep, massive markets that um, you know are less challenging uh, to get set in terms of size. Uh, but still, there's a, there's a problem there, right? Yeah. So you started off um, with more of a quant focus. Now there's been a lot said as well about you know quantitative approaches, factor investing. Where do you see the most useful applications of quantitative uh, tools in investing? Yeah, I mean, I guess this goes back to a little bit to investment philosophy. But for me, the most, yeah, when, when people talk about quant investing, it's often, well, how can I make money? How can I make alpha? Where can I, you know, can I develop a quant DAA program? Uh, can I forecast expected returns in the short term better? Uh, these are all ideas. But I think where quant, analysis is most useful is staying away from problems and uh, and so you know if you th there, are, there are a bunch of um, ways that you can test uh, theories ideas um, and you can get measures of uncertainty around uh, estimates and that's really useful for how much conviction you want to um, you know employ on on strategies or on a, a particular uh, strategic asset allocation even so if you if you say the expected return on Australian equities is say six percent over the next ten years, six percent per annum, uh, how certain are you of that? And what is the range? And uh, you know I think that's that's an interesting question to ask. We try and put numbers on that. Um, you know we use an ensemble of models that gives us a very broad range of outcomes, but we also understand 
um, the limitations of those models and what slight changes in parameters might mean for outcomes and so forth. And that gives us a real sense of, of the uncertainty. And it is pretty large. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose there's always a lot of uncertainty in trying to predict the future. But um, I think another interesting concept as well that, that, that you've addressed in the past is that once you start transacting, you know, it, it changes the game. And, and I think you used the phrase is that the, the, the system is aware of its own data. Uh, the moment you start doing something, you know, the game changes. Um, how does that feature back into sort of predictive models? Uh, yeah, so I guess I think back to um, the early part of my career. So when I was uh, doing a lot of quant derivatives trading, um, and it was very clear early on that if you back-tested some uh, fairly accessible, fairly easily implementable um, trading strategies, that those sort of things attenuated um, with time fairly quickly. Uh, so you tended to focus on more computationally intensive, less accessible, less liquid opportunities um, to, to avoid that competition. So that meant things like trading the skew and the term structure of volatility, and moving into interbank markets and, and trading commodity futures at times when liquidity may not really be that great. So, so there is that aspect of being aware of the competition and being aware that other people are looking at data. But there's been really some really interesting stuff come out of academia itself. So in, in, in many um, academic publications, or the ones that I tend to look at, they focus on, on anomalies, asset pricing anomalies, and they're, they're almost entirely in equity and mostly US equity markets. Um, but studies have shown that the profitability of those things attenuate with time. And so the question is why? So, um, you know, harping back to a little earlier, it could be because of p-hacking, it could be that the results were not actually there, the anomalies weren't genuine anomalies. Um, but it could, it could be um, also because of another reason, and that is that uh, more sophisticated institutions, you know, hedge funds and the like, are reading academic literature and testing ideas and, um, that come through, testing anomalies and seeing if they're genuine, and then trading. Um, those anomalies um, and trading those opportunities away uh, and therefore the literature is now showing that these these things attenuate. So there's a really um, uh, nice paper that's come out that, that sort of goes that extra step. Uh, it's a few authors um, at the Smith Business School in Canada um, and it's a management science um, article from 2019 um, and it's some, titled something like when, when anomalies are publicized broadly uh, and they, they use this 13F data, SEC 13F data, to demonstrate that institutions uh, do actually trade um, these anomalies uh, away, at least to a large extent. So what's really interesting then is, um, of course, you know, the quants are reading this research, which is about awareness of, of information and data. And so now we're going to that sort of folded next level where the, uh, the quants are actually aware of the way that they themselves are behaving in response to new ideas and trading opportunities. So I think this is a really interesting time. Yeah, I think similar comments have been made around sort of the uh, option pricing model that before it sort of was commonly used, there were some criticisms about whether it was actually an actual, um, uh, an accurate reflection of the option price. But once everybody started using it, it sort of became a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, that was the main method and it was an absence of anything better. So, Yeah, I think, I think that's 
possibly true. I think I, rem I remember reading some, I mean, this is a long time ago, but reading something that some of the early estimates weren't too bad, right? They were not too far away from, from what Black Shoals was going to throw out. Um, and that's not too surprising, really, because if you just take a simple approach, um, forget about risk-neutral probabilities, just take physical probabilities and you price back the outcomes, then you're going to get a number that's not that wildly different. Um, but I think where the bit of the Black-Scholes model that I find very interesting is the way that you know industry very quickly realised that it was pretty good, but it also didn't really fit the market. And it adapted its use of the model um, to, to accommodate that fact. So the skew is something that's really important in options trading. Uh, so typically, you know, in, in you might see in the equity markets that call options are skewed down, the volatility associated with, if you price the implicit volatility, if you price those upside call options, it's lower than the implied volatility of the at-the-money uh, options. And similarly puts um, are more valuable, their volatility is priced up. So the market adapted to that, but then used the language of Black Shoals, right? So it kept the model, but said there's a skew and the skew's worth this or that. And there's a smile in some markets. It's a, it's a, a, a simple, you know, it looks a little bit more like an arctan curve in, in other markets, right? So there are different skews in different markets and this is understood and, and people trade it. Um, so I think that's one of the great things about finance or theoretical finance is it gives you a model. The model doesn't have to be right. It's just a reference point. Yeah. yeah. And then you can, you've got a language. Yeah. So is investing an art or a science in that degree? <laughs> well, I, I think I think it means um, different things to different people, right? So, uh, and there's a real difference between what you know we would like to do and what we actually do, right? Because we are we are humans. Um, so yeah, investing, you know, in practice, it often it can succumb to things like folklore and and um, behavioural biases. Um, they're they're a big big part or big part of the problem and that's where data-driven processes are, are really useful but ultimately investing is a, a human activity right it's uh, you know finance is a social science uh, investing is human it's subject to to, um, to those issues but then structurally we have agency issues everywhere um, and that happens for example with the principal agent problem with us and, a, and an investment manager or even internalization issues with large super funds, right? They, they have got this uh, a similar kind of moral hazard issue potentially there, uh, which they have to navigate and, and, and to build processes around. So it means um, different things. From, from my perspective, it's, it's always been about um, you know, using science to avoid problems, not using science to tell you the future, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's how I'd, I'd characterize it. So that may not help be helpful for a lot of people who want one answer. They want, they want the science answer or they want the art answer. Um, I'm going to say I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So I think you're now full-time at uh, Mind Super. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the, the investment challenges that you're working on uh, from the Mind Super perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, um, well, it's no secret that, that there's a merger potentially underway, so that that's obviously there, but um, and that that will generate a lot of uh, work. Um, but I guess from a inve direct investment or an immediate investment perspective, it's it's looking at um, low latency ways to shape our fixed income book. That's that's a um, 
you know, something we've been working towards for some time. What, what does that mean, low latency? I, I only well, heard that uh, being used in uh, reference to audio. Audio, okay, uh, yeah. Well, well, um, yeah. For us, it's about yeah. We we let's put it this way: you can have all sorts of views on the market, but if you can't implement, then why are you even developing views on the market? Um, and so we would like yeah. We we can at times develop views on uh, the the fixed income market, um, the, the constituents of that, and we would like to explore those views. But the latency we face is, you know, if you're using external managers, it takes time, it's transition costs that we spoke about are at play. Um, and, you know, the timing is a real issue because once you go through this due diligence process, you know, contracts have to be signed, there's a government uh, investment governance, um, you know, um, umbrella around all that stuff. And by the time that happens, you know, what have you left on the table? And we've experienced that in the past. Um, you know, during COVID, we, we did quite well in credit markets, but we could have done so much better. Um, and so we, we are looking at ways of how, you know, um, how can we you know, get our views in place fairly quickly. So is this a, a sort of a, a dynamic asset allocation or strategic tilting pro process? I'd say it's more like a TAA than a, than a DAA. Um, we, everyone uses these terms interchangeably. So for us, DAA is really making investment decisions at the sub-asset uh, sub class level. So that would be things like uh, tilting uh, into EM equities and, and less into DM or vice versa. Um, and so we would call that a DAA um, play. But TAA is more about stepping into those some asset classes and making calls like oh you know high yield versus investment grade versus sovereigns versus different parts of the curve potentially different industries so we'd like to be able to um, explore that and, and again you know this is this is, this is one of the problems that I've um, we've identified is that if you think about a way the way a fixed income manager operates you give them a mandate they're managing a tracking error they've got a benchmark they employ may employ some fairly well-known methods to generate alpha and you know you you should be happy with that right um, but there are times where you would like to tilt really heavily into certain um, into certain parts of the market and that's our ability to provide liquidity right we we can you know super funds can provide liquidity and um, and exploit those opportunities but the manager doesn't have a strong incentive to do that and they're constrained anyway so um, because of the mandate that they're operating under. So we are looking at how can we structure things a little differently. Yeah, so does that involve getting some delegation back from sort of the investment committee and the board? Uh, we've, we've got um, you know, that delegated authority around um, TAA and DAA within constraints. So that, that's already set in place in our investment governance framework. Um, but this is more about how do we execute, how do we implement, and that's one of the, the challenges. Right, you set up an investment governance framework, you think you're pretty happy with it, but then if you can't implement, then why even bother? So we are trying to get um, that in place. Yeah, so to become a bit more nimble in, in execution. So MindSuper is an interesting fund in in the sense that you know it's an industry front for the for the mining industry. And, and these days, you, you can't do a, a conference, including ours, without touching upon <laughs> like, you know, ESG and decommunization. Um, 
how do you tackle those problems with the context that, you know, knowing what your member base uh, uh, is? Yeah, I mean, you know, our members are, are from the mining industry and, and obviously a large number from the, from coal mining specifically. Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess I, I, you think about it from a very headline level. Obviously, coal mining and, and mining more generally are really important parts of our economy. Um, you know, really important industries, and and our fund has a really long heritage in in mining, right? So we've been around for eighty years, um, and we've been serving our members um, over that time. So, um, you know, we have a strong connection with our members, um, and we we obviously know that the money that we manage belongs to our members. It's not my money or the or the director's money or anyone's money. It's our members' money, and and that's first and foremost. And the fund's very very clear on that. Um, so, look, on, on ESG, we expect our managers to, to manage ESG risk. You know, we, we, we're cognizant of it and we ask them about what they're doing in that space. So it's not like we, um, we ignore that. It's a very important thing for us. Um, and you know, we're monitoring the carbon intensity of our um, portfolios wherever we can. So in our equity portfolios, for example, we're actually below benchmark in terms of carbon intensity. Um, so, you know, it's. I think people, you know, it would be wrong to think that because we're a mining, we're mine super, we don't care about ESG. That's just simply uh, are not true. Um, and, and look, we're not averse to investing in uh, opportunities in energy transition. Uh, so, so we're certainly in that space. But, but having said that, we aren't committed to net zero portfolio construction. Um, and and nor do we specifically avoid fossil fuels. We we haven't the, the fund hasn't taken that position, uh, and they continue to support the industry. And, and you know, that's for us. You know, our members they're obviously uh, you know, will be subject to change in any type of energy transition. So you know, the view of the fund is um, you know, we support a just transition. Um, you know, as as the global economy progresses towards um, you know a low carbon future and and I think that's the fund's position um, so you know we acknowledge change we know we know it's happening but we are very supportive of our members and and of a just transition um, so beyond ESG risk we we're currently building out our um, ESG stress testing framework and so later this year we'll have that in place and that uses the NGFS stress testing um, scenarios or NGFS scenarios to stress test our portfolios and that's going to be challenging um, private markets are very difficult to to um, you know assess the ESG characteristics of but we we've, think we've developed some reasonable proxies and approaches for that yeah and also from an asset allocation and, and risk perspective um, decarbonization is an interesting problem because I think it, it sort of became clear at the start of, of, of 2022 with the invasion of Ukraine and the energy prices, what happened there, that um, portfolios that were already quite aggressively decarbonized turned out to have a bit of a, a growth tilt um, and, and so could struggle in, in periods where value does better. Um, how do you think about that? Is, is there a, a more sensible way of doing that? Well, I, I mean, I, there's, there's a couple of thoughts there. One is that... Um, you have to identify. I think many other super funds have this. This you know, they have this issue far more acutely, which is if you make those kind of commitments towards net zero, um, your your tracking error against these benchmarks will be large. 
obviously that has a your future your super tracking error consequence, which is another another issue. So you've got you know, that, that's one of the things that's happened in superannuation that's really fascinating is things that were largely distinct have have now are now interacting. So you've got regulatory risk and the possibility of of um, you know the regulator changing the test. What does that mean? You've got um, you know things like early release, which we never anticipated, and what does that mean for for the future um, coming together? And then you, you, you're running a fund under you've got an investment objective, a CPI plus investment objective. You've got peer relative comparisons, and you've got you know, the heat map YFYS. So you've got this triangle of uh, of joy um, <laughs> to operate in. Um, so so it's complex, and and. I think for, for anyone, if you're stepping away from, from uh, carbon intensity, that, that's what will come with it. Uh, and that's shown up in, you know, when, when with the, some of the debate around the YFYS test, that has actually, that's been a feature, right? If, if funds are making uh, a stand based on their membership uh, or the people that they're trying to appeal to, um, how, do these, how do they get measured for performance? Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it is... Um, a problem, but having said that, you know, eventually, as the if the economy does, you know, you had someone recently on this podcast, I think, talking about uh, fission, right? So, you know, if you if you think about uh, you know fission and uh, the possibilities for the future in energy, you know, eventually, the, the economy will make transitions towards that end, and the market will adjust for that. Right? It, it always has and always will, um, but yeah, we you know. I guess some funds think of it as a, would take it as a cost of capital argument, and net zero has been part of that. Uh, for us, it's it's more about um, a just transition and an awareness of of the risks that ESG poses. Yeah, yeah. So, so you you are full time now with Mindsuper, but you mentioned there's still uh, a paper coming out on active, passive, and uh, the cost involved in that. What else is on on your agenda? Are you planning to uh, publish more papers or continue to publish papers? Oh, look, I, I think I'll continue to do research. I you know I enjoy working with my co-authors, so I'll keep keep doing that. Um, and yeah, I've got co-authors at at UTS, Monash, and University of South Australia. Um, so I'll keep keep working on with those guys. It's really fascinating work. I really enjoy the interaction. It's very stimulating, um, and um, you know they have there are some very interesting debates that come out of those those conversations. So I'll continue um, doing that. I, I still have some engagement with universities, and yeah, you know, for example, the math department at the University of Sydney, which is sort of my origins, right? I was a mathematician, so uh, they have a, a unit there on financial mathematics, which I've, I've provided guest lectures for in the past, and and probably will will continue doing that kind of um, you know thing for students, but. Uh, yeah, I mean the the role I've got and um, the the challenges that we've got ahead at Mindsuper, we've got a, a merger potentially um, to work on. It, I'll be fairly occupied, I think, over the next uh, couple of years. Fair enough, fair enough. Maybe we can do a li- finish up with a little bit of crystal ball gazing. Um, with that sort of one foot still in, in academia and, and finger on the pulse, where do you see? some of the more interesting innovations is that we heard a lot about machine learning in recent years where do you think that the the more interesting innovations will come from i think the most interesting innovation i mean machine learning has been around for a long time right in various guises and and that's um you know in the in the 90s we called it neural networks and it is what it is today but i think what's what's clever about today is the 
you know, the, the nuances in the methodologies and the ability to try and test the model to understand what it's really doing. Um, and, I, and I think that's something we've never had in the past. It was just a bit of a black box. I think that's, that area is becoming um, less problematic. Uh, so, so I think that's an opportunity. But, you know, there's still, no matter what model you use, it's, you're going to have a tremendous amount of uncertainty about the forecasting. And uh, I think that's, the, that's where I think understanding what the model's doing, but also getting out of the model some understanding around uncertainty is going to be paramount in applications of, of that. So it comes back to that uh, initial philosophy that you were talking about, that all of these tools are basically to help you avoid problems. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, Sean, thank you very much for, for your participation. It was an interesting discussion. Thanks, Matt. Always nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.